This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're into February already, a month when we acknowledge heart health by wearing the color red. It's an excellent opportunity to remind folks to know their numbers, their cholesterol levels, blood pressure, to reduce the risk of heart attacks or stroke, and seek intervention when the risk is deemed high enough. Well, Mark, that's so important because we know how to improve patients' odds with interventions, and in fact, we have been improving them every year. But still, some 610,000 Americans have their first stroke every year, and another 525,000 Americans have their first heart attack every year, and we believe we can do better. And the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiologists came out with a new set of risk assessment guidelines for heart attack and stroke, and they increased the potential risk markers that would suggest early intervention with blood pressure or cholesterol-controlling medication. And, of course, behavior modification, changing our behavior, is such an important companion to any of these protocols. We know, of course, that quitting smoking, something that we are passionately committed mm-hmm. to, moderately increasing exercise, and reducing overall body weight has an enormous impact on patient risk. So these are the behaviors that that we need to encourage and support in research and test innovations to advance. The risk assessment guidelines also breaks down risk factors for different ethnic groups. Hispanics and African-Americans tend to be at higher risk for cardiovascular events. As well as higher risk for diabetes, which of course elevates heart attack risk. It's all related, Mark, but it's most important that we arm our patients, all consumers, with good information on how they can best protect their health. You know, the interesting thing about that, Margaret, is there is so much innovation in the tech sector now to create wearable devices and mobile apps uh, for all kinds of health monitoring. And the tech sector is really helping put the power of control in the hands of patients. And over time, I think that's uh, going to have an impact on patient engagement and patient health as well. I think you're right. And our guest today has had his eye on the technology sector of healthcare for a long time. Dr. David Brailer is considered the father of health information technology in this country. He was the nation's first national coordinator for health IT under President George W. Bush and has since founded Health Evolution Partners, which supports the growth of promising companies in the health IT space. It'll be interesting to hear his assessment on the state of health IT adoption in this country and how close we might be to meaningful use, Margaret. And Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org will stop by. She's always looking into misstatements about health policy that have been spoken in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. David Brailer in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The state of healthcare and the state of the union, the two collided last week with President Obama's speech to the nation, walking a fine line between acknowledging the myriad flaws with the rollout of the health insurance exchanges during his state of the union speech. The president stood by this singular achievement of passage of the healthcare law as a good thing still for this country. On the same day he gave his State of the Union address, the Centers for Disease Control came out with an assessment of the state of health care in this nation and the toll being exacted on families due to skyrocketing health costs. The report showed that one in four American families is struggling to pay their health care bills. The report looked at the uninsured and those struggling with high deductibles and out-of-pocket costs as having a serious impact on family finances. 
Meanwhile, hardliners in Virginia are holding on to their just-say-no policy. Governor Terry McAuliffe's top agenda was to expand Medicaid for hundreds of thousands of uninsured Virginians. The newly elected Democrat sworn into office with that at the top of his list of things to do. The Virginia House has the votes to block the expansion and voted no. In Georgia, a sit-in at the governor's office led by state lawmaker and followers urging the governor in that state to expand Medicaid led to the protesters being arrested for refusing to leave the governor's office. And the FDA has confirmed what has been suggested in numerous studies about antibiotics use in animal stocks. Consuming these animals does, in fact, lead to antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria in humans. The FDA studied the use of certain antibiotics, penicillin and tetracycline among them, in animal feed and found they did indeed lead to an increase in antibiotic-resistant bacteria and infections. At least 1 to 2 million Americans fall sick every year with such infections, and 23,000 Americans die each year from exposure to such strains. And the bird flu and the year of the horse. Chinese New Year celebrations, at least in parts of Hong Kong and Beijing, where populations are high, are going to be low on chicken availability. Mass chicken slaughters are underway as a precaution against the spread of the latest bird flu. H7N9 was found in a single living bird, which led health officials to declare the discount chicken market contaminated. Many revelers will have to ring in the Chinese New Year without the traditional chicken dinner on their plates. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with David Brailer, MD and PhD, Managing Partner and CEO of Health Evolution Partners, which seeks to develop and support companies innovating in the health information technology space. Dr. Brailer is known as the father of health information technology movement in the United States, served as the first national coordinator for health information technology at the Department of Health and Human Services under President George W. Bush. A physician, educator, and entrepreneur, Dr. Brailer earned his MD from West Virginia University and his Ph.D. in health economics from the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, where he practiced in infectious disease and taught health economics. Dr. Brailler founded Care Science, the nation's first health information exchange. He was the Charles A. Dana Fellow and the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholar at the UPenn School of Medicine. Dr. Brailler, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. It's great to be with you today. Oh, we're glad you're here with us. And you've been exploring and inhabiting the health information space for quite some time. And you jokingly refer to yourself in a recent speech as the grandfather of health IT. We know you're not that old, but <laughs> technology is moving rapidly. And you say that we're in this era of extreme chaos in uh, the healthcare industry, not just in the United States uh, with the deployment of the Affordable Care Act, but also globally. This high level of chaos is a harbinger of new innovations in your estimation. And the health IT development and adoption is one of the biggest market forces coming to bear in the industry. So tell our listeners how is this chaos and disruption spurring significant innovation in the healthcare industry? Yeah, Mark, and I think maybe a, a little history lesson. If you look back at some of the great innovations in healthcare, whether it is renal dialysis or uh, the iron lungs that turned into ventilators or some of the original breakthrough medications, let alone health information technology, they came up as periods through periods when major changes were underway. Some of the major drugs that uh, we now consider routine came up through wars. Uh, some of the times when we developed uh, life-saving technologies were during epidemics. And what you realize is that it's during periods of chaos 
where the normal, sane people are distracted running things that the crazy innovators, the entrepreneurs actually can start running and they start doing things. And we're in the period, uh, a period like that probably that has never been seen before. And that's one of the reasons you see so many new companies and so many new efforts to reinvent healthcare. And we know we need the solution, but it's because of the, of the dislocation that's underway that these solutions that normally get stepped on are actually getting a lot of time and attention. It's a very promising area of innovation right now. Well, Dr. Braylor, I really appreciate that little bit of mini history lesson, and I was just doing a mental calculation. It was probably 2004 when we had you here in Connecticut speaking at what was probably the first organized uh, meeting on health information technology. So a lot of water under the dam in those 10 years. And we know that the drivers of health IT don't come from any one-size-fit-all health policy directive. But without a policy initiative that you initiated with the Office of the National Coordinator, I suspect that health IT adoption would be much further behind than it is now. So I'm going to ask you to maybe just before we talk more about the future, how far have we come since you were the first national coordinator? Well, we, we have come a long way. And, you, you know, it's, it's interesting when people put so much emphasis, Margaret, on the policy effort uh, that I had the privilege to be involved with. And I say that because my view when I was in Washington was there are policy efforts that are created across all kinds of change areas in healthcare or other parts of our society, and so few of them really have the kind of impact that health IT did. And why was that? Well, it's because we had 30 years of developing the core technologies, 30 years of proving the validity. I remember when I was in graduate school reading studies from when I was a child that demonstrated when a doctor used information that was generated by, I guess we would call it a computer today, they were better at practicing medicine. We had a president that was ready. We had a healthcare system that was desperate for solutions. And those magic moments don't come along very often. And it's one of the reasons that health IT has just skyrocketed so quickly. And it's because all the things were set right. And we've come a tremendous way. When I started in 2004, uh, less than 5% of doctors' offices had electronic records in place. Today, the number is about 55 to 60%. And I think it's growing at a very steady pace, and it's become something where you simply can't over the long run be in medical practice without electronic records. Hospitals nearly universally have them in place. There are a few stragglers that are still working on it, but it's an absolute necessity of business for hospitals. And we've seen consumers go from being completely agnostic, not really understanding why it helped for their doctor to use a computer to keep track of their drugs or their medications or their treatments, to now having a very high resonance where people, 7 out of 10, say they choose a doctor that's using electronic records. And, and I think what you've seen is an irreversible gear shift change in the industry where now as we start dialoguing, we're going to be talking about what gets built upon this. And those changes are massive, and I'm sure we'll talk more about those, but it's been a big change. And it's not just at the federal level, and it's not just in the United States. It's a global change. My peers from uh, other countries we're all seeing similar changes. In fact, most people have forgotten that the U.S. followed a massive effort in the United Kingdom designed to bring them into the information age. And it's happening in Asian countries and in South America, and it's happening at the state and local level. So this is the digital era of healthcare, and it's sweeping the world, and the United States is really a great forerunner of this. 
Dr. Burley, you say it's imperative with a top-down and bottom-up transformation happening in the industry that healthcare organizations develop innovation receptor sites. And you say one of the growing disciplines in healthcare that's becoming more stream is the chief innovation officer. And we have the pleasure of having uh, Molly Coy, who's the UCLA innovation officer, here on our show talking about their care delivery innovations Tell us about some of the groundbreaking work that's going on. What are you excited about? And uh, are there results that might be of interest to our listeners? Sure. And let, let me certainly describe what I think of as the dance, the ballet of innovation, because you're right. Um, major healthcare systems, pharmaceutical companies, health plans, and all the other large companies that make up our large healthcare system have become very attuned to innovation. Uh, They are looking for it to help them understand ways they can solve problems. And they're certainly looking at it with respect to risks it poses to them in terms of disruptions or undermining them. And the fact that they, many, many, uh, hundreds of organizations have designated investment uh, or innovation offices and innovation officers or some kind of a window that's looking out trying to figure this out shows how important, how large-scale, and how sweeping this trend is. I would say, though, those are not innovators. The innovators are largely doctors that are out trying to find a new way to treat, and therefore they're programming some code to help them figure out how to treat a patient better. And by the way, I think this area of decision support that sits upon the electronic record that helps clinicians figure out if the patient should get treatment X or Y, and if they get treatment X, what diagnostics they should get. It's a very promising area. Decision support is a natural growth upon this, but that's coming from a doctor or a laboratory that's working on that. Um, it, it could come from a startup. Uh, if you look uh, you know, from where I sit in the Bay Area, I could probably see from my office 150 or 200 healthcare IT startups, early stage companies, many of which are consumer facing, using apps, mm-hmm. trying to help people manage their health care, manage their decision making, manage the money aspects of health care, engage in more wellness activities, employer sponsored or not. These are venture funded startups, very consumer facing except in health care, again, being watched by the innovation officers. Uh, the innovation is coming from people that are not in the healthcare system generally today. They're outside of it. And so the fact that the collective respect of the industry is paying so much attention to them is something that I think of as being just a very, very promising turn for an industry that to date has been very inward focused and not very uh, focused on what's happening that's going to change the industry. Well, Dr. Braylor, we appreciate and recognize the role that organizations like yours, Health Evolution Partners, uh, has in bringing people together to channel and express that creativity. And I know you have an annual leadership forum on topics that are uh, impacting these big changes in healthcare, and a recent topic centered on the bottom-up reinvention of primary care. You know, we've been uh, engaged in organizing and delivering primary care for a long time uh, here in Connecticut and to some degree around the country. So this topic is of particular interest to us. Tell us, uh, I think this transformation would have come along anyway, but certainly with the Affordable Care Act improving access to primary care, what is this bottom-up reinvention that's underway? And maybe some examples of how you think primary care will actually be improved by it. So primary care has been an area that, you know, we all know, I mean, you're living through this, has been neglected, uh, yet it's also seen as having tremendous value. 
And so what are the ways that we can change primary care to make it more effective? And I think there's really two elements of this that anchor all the many innovations that are underway. One of them is that the patient is a co-producer of the primary care result. The idea that the patient is a passive vessel upon which the doctor or other clinician performs magic and treatment and the patient is cured through no act of their own, I think is, is yesterday's model. The model today of primary care where we're seeing success, where we're seeing very high engagement rates, participation in preventive activities that are generating significant reductions in downstream utilization, higher compliance with medications, um, higher engagement in basic health activities that present uh, that prevent kind of the slip into more illness. Uh, these are all done in some way or another by engaging the patient in person, over the phone, um, engaging them with information tools, with their own information, and, again, many ways. Some are very automated, very IT-driven. Some are very touchy, feely, very in-person. But I think that's a key fulcrum. And the primary care organizations and clinicians that have understood this, uh, and a number of them practice around um, areas where seniors are getting engaged. It's not just uh, aimed at young, healthy people. is really remarkable, and I have a lot of uh, hope that that co-production will be a driver. The second underpinning of this is that the home is a key site of care. It's not just where the patient goes back to after they go to a site of care, but that the home is where primary care visits can happen, where adjunctive follow-up visits can happen, where post-acute management can occur to keep patients from sliding back into the hospitalization. It's a site where we have seen in a number of so-called ambulatory ICUs where we can scale the level of intensity so we can have visiting nurses come by once, twice, three times a day. We can have patients in hospital beds. We can have medications dispensed. We can have patients televideo monitored, telemetry monitored, it's really becoming a really critical site of care. And as we know, a number of an increasing number of people want to die at home as they face terminal illness. So the recognition of the home as a legitimate part of our care apparatus is the other piece that buttresses this. And so I think this is a very promising area. And you're seeing many innovations around how to engage people, how to think about care delivery, how to finance care that's built off of this. And the promise is enormous because we know that the two key drivers of healthcare waste and expense are unnecessary hospitalizations and unnecessary specialist visits, and primary care is the fulcrum for both of those. We're speaking today with Dr. David Brailer, managing partner and CEO of Health Evolution Partners, which seeks to develop and support companies innovating in the health information technology space. Dr. Brailer served as the first national coordinator for health information technology at the Department of Health and Human Services under President George W. Bush. Dr. Brailer, your organization is focused on private equity engagements uh, on a global scale, and you say we're in this area of churn with lots of uncertainty, and you predict that we're going to see waves of uh, innovators transforming healthcare IT every few years. Um, so early players in health IT may be bested by 
upstarts that, who have figured out the, a better way of delivering services. I, I was interested in your focus about where these investments are, thinking that we're seeing an enormous amount of gamification that's going on in healthcare as well. We're a different type of generation uh, than we were 20 years ago with the advent of technology. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what you've been focusing on in investments, uh, both in this country and globally. Sure. It's it's a, a tremendous amount of change. I'm going to actually start by telling you what we're not focused on, because uh, it, to some degree, it's everything else that we are. One of the interesting results of the meaningful use incentives uh, that came from the stimulus bill, the, you know, the massive subsidization of electronic record purchases by doctors, hospitals, is that it created a bubble in the electronic record space. Public companies surged up to tremendously high PEs. Their their stock valuation is very high compared to their profits. And uh, a very large number, in excess of 500 electronic record companies were formed uh, particularly in the outpatient ambulatory space. And th- th- we've seen tremendous uh, and unjustifiable valuations for companies because they're touching this money. And I think investors have not figured out that that money is over in just a, f- a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And after that, mm-hmm. the bubble kind of will pop. And so we have not paid attention to that space, although I think some people have done well in it. Where we've focused our efforts are on the following question. Imagine we have ubiquitous point-of-care electronic records. We're almost there. What are you going to do with that? And that starts pointing you at what do you do with all that information? It's the next layer that's built on the pilings that are put down to electronic records. How do you use that to change decision-making by a clinician? I mentioned decision support. It's a very promising area, and we're seeing this, frankly, happening a lot more in Europe than we're seeing in the United States today. But Europe is a few years ahead in having electronic records, the basic substrate in place. How are we helping this uh, using information to monitor and to assess? Can you maybe call it big data, but to look for disease patterns, to look for treatment anomalies, to look for subpopulations in which things are not working well. And this requires extensive, standardized data. And we are only just getting it today, and I think that area will become explosively valuable. And, you know, even a third area, which might not seem directly relevant to people, is how do we use the information to begin driving robotics? Um, You know, how do we really take uh, and put in place, whether it's in the home or hospital settings, in a surgical setting, in a training setting, tools and services that start doing things around and for clinicians, whether it's to help them have telepresence, to help them do a surgery, to help them train for a procedure, to help them assist, move, support a patient. This is an area that's just in its infancy, and as we've watched this, it's going to have enormous promise. So those are just three areas of many, but they all have in common what we think of as the second generation of health information technology, which is don't just collect information, do something significant and valuable with it. And that's really where we think the focus is. Well, Dr. Briller, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't take the chance to ask you what you're seeing in this next generation of healthcare professional students that are coming up, physicians, nurses, dentists, behavioral health. I'm sure you're talking to the the full gamut of people. And, you know, somebody said to us recently that someday we'll look back and say, wasn't a shame how illiterate the population was. Only 2% of people could write code 
back in 2014 and that you know, for everybody there's just this enormous shift in the way they're going to study, practice, learn. So what are you saying to uh, today's students of the health professions about the set of skills they need to master to really harness this technology, to harness patient engagement, and to really move forward into the next era of healthcare? You know, when, when you talk to medical students, nursing students, or um, postgraduate students of various types, who use information tools in every aspect of their lives, inside of healthcare and outside, who are trained with classroom educational technologies, with simulation tools, who are assessed and evaluated for competencies based on those. What I say to them is a single simple message. Don't give up because you're right. The day you graduate, you're going to go into a healthcare system that is dominated by 50-somethings or 60-somethings who are way behind you in technology, who don't have the faith in it that you do, who do not see its potential, who are not making the investments that they should be because of so many constraints in these organizations. And the last thing you want to do is to give up the principle of how you believe this should be, because you are right. This should be way more friction-free. It should be way more free-flowing, way more interconnected, way more empowering of the people that are trying to do things, and way less top-down and bureaucratic and controlling. And one of the interesting things I was just seeing in data about, this is about doctors, that uh, if you look at career choice of, of doctors leaving residency, where they want to practice, having access to modern information technology is one of the key decision factors that doctors are putting weight on today, and it's out of nowhere over the past few years. So they're really starting to vote with their feet. If you have modern information technology and you can do it on a mobile phone or it's ubiquitously available and it's easy to use and it really helps them solve problems and it's adaptive, you're going to recruit the bumper crop of talented doctors for the future. So I think the labor market is starting to follow technology and people are voting with their feet. But I tell them, don't give up. You're right. That's very optimistic. And we've been speaking with Dr. David Brailler, uh, managing partner and CEO of Health Evolution Partners and the first national coordinator for health information technology at the Department of Health and Human Services. You can learn more about Dr. Brailler's work by going to healthevolutionpartners.com. Dr. Brailler, thank you so much for spending time with us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Mark and Margaret, it's great to be with you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, one lawmaker claimed that the Affordable Care Act was responsible for a recent loss of healthcare jobs. But the loss was minuscule, and economists we spoke with said the drop had nothing to do with the health care law. Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers, chair of the House Republican Conference, said that, quote, for the first time in over a decade, the health care sector lost jobs. And she continued, it's another impact of the president's health care law on health care in this country and on people's jobs. She's right about the loss of jobs. The December report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimated a reduction of 6,000 jobs for healthcare employment that month. And that's the first time the healthcare sector has seen a monthly drop in more than a decade. But there were more than 14 million healthcare jobs in December. So a loss of 6,000 is small, 0.04%, in fact. 
Economists also don't see a connection with the health care law. One Princeton University professor told us reading anything into a one-month drop like this is, quote, silly. Another economist from Dartmouth told us the December numbers are preliminary and could be revised or at least an outlier. The law is actually expected to increase health care employment as it increases not only the number of Americans with insurance, but national health care spending. One report, often cited by Republican legislators, estimated the law would add 890,000 health care jobs. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. The flu doesn't just exact a toll on public health. It packs a meaningful punch on the economy every year as well. Comprehensive vaccination programs have had an impact on curtailing flu outbreaks, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. In 2011, an estimated 100 million workdays and close to $7 billion in lost wages were attributed to the flu largely because many employees without paid sick leave are more inclined to work while sick. An estimated 80% of those who come down with flu-like symptoms ignore doctor's orders and go to work, leading to more widespread co-infections. In a first-of-its-kind study, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health decided to analyze the impact on flu outbreaks in the workplace and to ask what would the difference be if there were universal access to paid sick leave. Lead researcher Dr. Supriya Kumar says their study showed a pretty dramatic link between access to paid sick leave and a reduction in flu outbreak in the workplace. They also created another option. What if there were a new sick leave category focusing just on flu days? Their model showed that if those workers specifically diagnosed with flu were guaranteed just one paid day off to recuperate, there'd be a 25% reduction in the spread of flu. And when workers were guaranteed two paid days off, the numbers went up to a 40% reduction in co-infection. A universal paid leave program for all workers that has the potential to greatly reduce flu co-infection in the workplace, positively impacting both public health while saving billions of dollars in the overall economy? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.